If you have your Bibles, turn with me in them to uh, the Gospel of Luke, and that to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, and let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we pray that as we open up Holy Scripture, that you by your Holy Spirit would, Lord, illumine our minds and thus convince our hearts and thus produce change in the way we live. That, Lord, as our understanding and our vision of you grows, that, Lord, our capacity to worship you would grow the same. We pray that you would bless us now, and we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Towards the end of Luke's gospel, the gospel writer Luke, he gives us special insight into the life of Jesus, not prior to the cross, but rather following the resurrection. And if you remember the story early on that Easter morning, several of the women, if you remember, they went to the tomb only to find that the tomb, the stone, had been rolled away. And when they entered into the tomb, remember they found it, of course, they found it empty. And that set off a chain of events involving angels, a lot of running back and forth with the disciples. But as the chaos of that early morning discovery had settled in, later on that day was a seven-mile walk back home to Emmaus by two of Jesus' followers. And if you're one to take notes, I want to give you an outline because the narrative or the passage here is fairly long. I want to give you an outline to help you navigate through the story, to give you a roadmap of sorts, just to see where we're going. What we'll see in verses 13 through 24 is the confusion of the two travelers. The confusion of the two travelers. And then in, in verses 25 through 27, the clarity of God's word. And finally, in verses 28 through 33, the conviction of seeing Christ. And so the confusion, the clarity, and the conviction of seeing Christ. And that's just to help you, just to give you a structure of the story. Well, the story begins in verse 13 with some confused followers of Christ. Look down in your Bibles to Luke 24, verse 13 with me. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. One of the first questions that we have on this little road to Emmaus is the identity of these two travelers, right? Well, who were they? Well, we know one of them because later down in verse 18, a name is given to us by the name by a man by the name of Cleopas. Now, we don't know for sure who he is, but he might be, he might be that Cleopas is the same as Clopas from John 19.25. John tells us there that there were a few women standing by the cross of Jesus, one of which was Mary, the wife of Clopas. And so we're told that they were family members of Mary and Joseph. And so it could be that Cleopas was Clopas and that the other was his wife, Mary. Now, we're not certain, and that's okay, because Luke, he he doesn't go out of his way to describe their physical identification, but rather their spiritual condition. Here were two of Jesus' close followers. They had just witnessed the most 
painful heartbreak of their lives. They were in great despair, grieving the death of their beloved. And this is how we find them on the road back home to Emmaus in sorrow and in defeat. But as they walked along this, this difficult road, a third, a third person joined them. Luke tells us that as they were walking or as they were talking, that Jesus drew near and went with them. Now you would think that the faces of these two travelers would have lit up, right? Surprised, overjoyed to see Jesus. But they didn't know that it was Jesus. Well, we, we can ask this question, how did they not know that the man who had just begun walking with them was Jesus? If they knew Jesus well enough to, to love him and to follow him, how could they not recognize him? Is it because they were so filled with sadness that they refused to lift their heads? Is it because they couldn't fathom that Jesus could be alive? But all those explanations, they don't really answer the question. How could they not realize that it was Jesus? It's because if you notice in verse 16, it says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now let me ask you a question here and you guys are all students of the Bible. Who kept their eyes from recognizing Jesus? You know, in grammar, it's what we call a divine passive. And I know there's some seminary guys here. And here it was a divine hindrance. God was not allowing them to see Jesus. If you go to the Gospel of Mark, and you don't have to turn there, it's another account of this. It says that Jesus appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And so their vision of Jesus was being divinely blocked. It was being providentially blurred. Well, why? Why would you do that? Luke's, Luke's going to tell us, but he's not going to tell us now. That answer is going to come. Well, let's look at verse 17 here in the story. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? Jesus, he interrupts them, makes his way into the conversation. What are you guys talking about? Well, Jesus knows, doesn't he? Of course he knows. He absolutely does. So why does he bother to even ask? It's because this is how the Lord draws our hearts out, right? Remember God in the garden when he called out to Adam, where are you? He knew exactly where Adam was. But he wanted to draw his heart out. And Jesus, to these two followers, he says, what are you talking about? In verse 17, they, they stood still, looking sad. They were overwhelmed with sorrow. Uh, they were overcome with grief, and they couldn't even respond. But notice, they simply stood still. They stopped. Their souls were so cast down. Their hearts were so despondent that they had, they had nothing to say. But they, they were silent, but they couldn't continue in their silence. Look at verse 18. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Cleopas looks to the man, What are you talking about, bro? How do you not know? Are you the only one who doesn't know? 
And it was obvious to the two that this stranger was coming from Jerusalem as he was on the road with them. And if he was coming from Jerusalem, there was no way for him not to know what had just occurred in the city, right? Are you the only visitor who doesn't know? How do you not know? Well, you can just see, and I love this, you can just see the irony in the confusion of these two disciples. You see, this stranger who had just joined them was actually the only one in all of Jerusalem who really knew what had happened, right? While these two followers accused Jesus of being out of touch than anyone else in all the city, it was the very opposite. They themselves were the ones who did not know. And Jesus, he knew. He knew it all better than anyone else. He alone could explain what had transpired during his Jewish and Roman trials. He alone could testify what it was like to be mocked and tortured. He alone felt the thorny crown upon his brow, the steel nails driven through his hands and his feet. He alone experienced the most horrible death. And he alone could describe the inside of that dark tomb at the first light of the resurrection. Instead of being the only person who did not know, he was the only person who did know. It's the irony. But notice that Jesus in this story, who is incredibly knowing, is incredibly patient. That Jesus, who could have responded back with all of his, all of his knowledge, he remained patient and forbearing and long-suffering. Rather than explaining to these two disciples all that he knew, when he was being accused of being the only visitor in Jerusalem who didn't know the things that had happened, he asked, verse 19, Jesus says this, what things are you talking about? Sometimes I get confused. Is Jesus lying here? You know? It's almost comical. It's almost laughable. Because you see, that kind of patience is, is not normal. And brothers and sisters, what we need to appreciate, appreciate about Jesus is this, that Jesus is willing to travel down the road to confusion, of confusion, with his disciples. I think when I read this passage, I think about the patience of Jesus, that Jesus is willing to listen to all of their doubts, and what you and I need to know is that this Jesus who's on this road is the same Jesus in our lives, which is to say that he's willing to demonstrate that same kind of patience with me and with you. And that he's willing to overtake us on life's difficult path and road and fall in stride with us in our pain, in our confusion, in our despair. He is our high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Amen? And when we come to God with special difficulties, and I'm for sure in the last two years, we've had some special difficulties with particular needs, with various forms of bewilderment and confusion. Jesus, he seeks to come alongside of us. And it might be even this morning that some of you find yourselves like these two disciples, downcast, downtrodden, you find your faith weakening. You find your vision of Jesus being blurred. And what these disciples desperately needed was to meet with Jesus. 
And rather than finding Jesus, notice it was Jesus who found them on the road, and it was Jesus who drew near. Let's look back at verse 19. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since all these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But, and here it is, him they did not see. Notice that for these two travelers, they were disappointed in their hopes. This is what had crushed them. Look at what they said in verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. For them, their hopes, it, it, had, it had collapsed. Yet there was a ray of hope, wasn't there? Because some of the women, they went, and they said that the tomb was empty. But notice it all ends with another collapse at the end of verse 24. But him, they did not see. They are bewildered in their minds, and they're filled with despair unable to make any sense of what is taking place. And we come then to the second part of the story, the clarity of God's word. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now Jesus, he he was not being unkind or unloving here in rebuking these two disciples. His ministry as a high priest wasn't in jeopardy here because he pointed out their slowness of heart. This is, this is a part of Jesus' ministry to us, to tell us not simply what we want to hear, but to tell us what we need to hear. And this is what Jesus does for these two. Look at verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do with these two who are in such desperate need with their spirits despondent and low? He brings them the medicine. He brings them the medicine that their souls needed most. And that medicine, notice is this, it's holy scripture. Jesus brings to them the Bible. Now you have to realize here that what Jesus does here is of colossal significance. Why? It's because notice what these two disciples were despairing of. It was Jesus. They needed to see Jesus. Their souls had collapsed because verse 24, him they did not see. They needed to see Jesus. Well, then why, why were these two disciples hindered, hindered from seeing Jesus? It wasn't because they were so sorrowful, and it wasn't because they had forgotten his face. But it says, verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. 
And so any normal person would think, well, why didn't Jesus alleviate their fears? Why didn't Jesus give assurance to their souls? Why didn't Jesus give them confidence in their hope? By simply removing the divine hindrance from their eyes and enabling them to see his face. That's that's all that these disciples needed. They simply needed to see with their eyes the risen Savior, right? But notice that this is not what Jesus gives to them. This is not the medicine that he provides for them. Rather, Jesus directs his disciples back to Holy Scripture. And that is such an important principle for us to grasp and to understand, you see. The implement in which Jesus placed his total confidence in dealing with these disciples was the very holy word of God. This is how he was going to minister to them. It was Charles Spurgeon who said that he who was the author of Scripture now became the expositor of Scripture to them. And this was Jesus' ministry. And he does it again later on in verse 45 with his disciples. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Now again, there is no principle that you and I need to grasp more than this. That Jesus wants to point us to the centrality and to the primacy and to the sufficiency of the Bible. When Jesus comes and he, and he draws near to these disciples and he sees the anguish of their souls, what he brings to them is the exposition of the word and all the word. And notice, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Beloved, there is no lesson that in these days that I believe that we need to more urgently learn in the evangelical church than this lesson right here. The sufficiency of Holy Scripture. This is the answer to people's needs. This is the answer to the world's needs. This is the answer to the sinner's needs. Jesus Christ as revealed in Holy Scripture. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Uh, for us as Christians, there is no need that is more pressing in our current generation than to give ourselves to the study of Holy Scripture. That we ought to be students of it. All of us are called, every single one of us, are called to be students of the Bible. And the reason why is because this is where our spiritual needs and our emotional needs and our intellectual needs... They are met. It is sufficient. There is no need that God will not meet out of the riches of His truth of Holy Scripture. And if Jesus put His confidence here, what we ought to be asking ourselves is, how dare we place our confidence elsewhere? Yet one of the evidences of what is happening in the Christian church today in the subtlest of ways is our confidence is being seduced and pulled away from Scripture to something else. Not necessarily something bad, but something secondary. 
But that something secondary will be bad if it in any way, shape, or form replaces our confidence in the Bible. And so Jesus, he sets before us a pattern that we as Christians need to follow. The primacy of his word, the centrality of the Bible, the sufficiency of Holy Scripture. And you see, for these two disciples, this is where confusion was turned to order. This is where despair was turned to hope. Unbelief turned to faith. This is where the sickness of the soul was healed. Now again, let me ask you, let me ask you, Christian, do you believe that? Do you believe, do you believe in the sufficiency of Holy Scripture? Do you read it? Do you meditate on it? Do you pray through it? Today, the real issue is not on the authority of Scripture or the inerrancy of Scripture or even the inspiration of Scripture. The real issue for us is the sufficiency of it. Is it enough? And this is the question that we ought to ask ourselves. Do I believe the Bible to, to, to be sufficient to meet the needs of my own spiritual condition and for others? You know, sometimes we, we complain, we grumble, we go into periods of, periods of discontentment. It's because we, we feel like this is not need, meeting our needs. And we need something else. I pastor a church, and we got young people in our church. I used to pastor a church with young people. You know, a lot of times, singleness can be hard. Singleness can be hard. But finding a significant other won't meet all your needs. I got some in my church who are in their mid-30s, and they're worried about not getting married. And they, they think that finding a spouse will meet all their needs. Do we really believe that the Bible is sufficient to meet our needs? That's a big question for us to ask. And for Jesus, there's absolutely no question about the answer to that. And notice what happened to these two travelers. This is what caused their souls to be set on fire. Look at verse 32. It says that these two disciples said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? Do you see how these two were brought to have that convicted, burning heart? It wasn't just an experience. It wasn't some new thrill. It wasn't some new way of finding God. It wasn't some creative way of getting near to God. It was the exposition of Holy Scripture. And it brought to them a firm faith. It brought a renewed hope. But most of all, it brought to them Jesus that's who they needed to see. And as Jesus opened up Scripture, He revealed Himself. They were able to see Jesus. And church, let me ask you, when you come under the ministry of God's Word at Lighthouse Community Church, Sunday after Sunday, or when you come to, what's this thing called? Praxis? Oh, yeah. Praxis. <laughs> Sit at all y'all sweaters. <laughs> and when you come and when you come under the teaching of the word, 
Do you come with that kind of expectation? That when you come, you think to yourself, I'm about to meet Jesus. He is about to reveal himself to me. Do you recognize that in the purpose of God, this is, this is his divinely ordained instrument by which he blesses and grows and encourages and sanctifies his people. But yet for so many of us, this thing is just in our car, in the console, in our rooms. Sometimes we just leave it at church because we don't want to take it home. You know, some of us, we come, we come to church scarcely expecting that the living God is going to do anything because all we're going to do is just look at the Bible. What is that? But let me say that when Holy Scripture is opened and read and exposited, lives are changed. Lives are set on fire. Jesus, he delays, he delays their recognition of him because he wants them to go back to holy scripture. And Jesus felt that these two individuals needed more than anything else was an exposition in the word of God of the things concerning himself. And so that's why for me as a pastor, it is heartbreaking when I see evangelical churches across the landscape feel the need to do everything and anything but Preach the word of God. That breaks my heart. Because they think there's a better way. But Jesus just showed us this is the way. You know, I thank God for Pastor Allen. And uh, I've invited Pastor Allen and in all the churches that I've been at because I know for him, without compromise, he preaches Holy Scripture. And so again, I come here and I'm so thankful. And you all ought to be tremendously blessed that you have Pastor Allen to preach Holy Scripture or any man who preaches the Word of God. Well, why did Jesus go to the Bible for these two that so desperately needed to see Jesus? And why is it so imperative that we do the same? It's because this is how he wanted these two to see him. It's through his Word. From Genesis to Revelation, the the overarching master theme of the entire Bible is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 5, 39, it is the scriptures that bear witness about me. Colossians 1, 28, Paul said, him we proclaim. Well, how is that so? Uh, Paul, he, he said this, he said, that we ought to teach the whole counsel of God, the whole Bible, the whole counsel of God. And yet he said in Colossians 1, Him we proclaim. How is that so? It's because all of Scripture intersects at the summit, which is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the very pinnacle of the message of Holy Scripture. And our vision of Him, our our knowledge of Him, our, our love for Him, our faith in Him will not grow apart from the place where He makes Himself known. We don't come to the Bible just because it's some kind of duty, the Christian thing to do, but rather it's the avenue, the portal in which we get to see him. And this is exactly what Jesus was doing on the road to Emmaus. Well, we come to the third and final part of the story. 
that it was through the exposition of Scripture that brought the conviction of seeing Christ. Look at verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted, and I love Jesus here. He, he acted as if he were going further. So here they're walking on the road. Here's uh, Cleopas and uh, Mary's house, and they go, oh, we're going to go this way. And Jesus like, oh, oh, you guys live there? I never knew that. It's like, no, Jesus, you do know. You're just messing with them, right? He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and, and broke it and gave it to them. And notice, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. What an interesting story. They're walking with this dude. He preaches to them. They're amazed. They're convicted. They say, hey, come over for dinner. They break bread. They go, Jesus, you know? And then Jesus disappears, right? He disappears. The time had flown by for these two, and soon these two, they found themselves nearing the exit to Emmaus. And again, I love how Jesus acted like he needed to go farther But what's interesting is this. Notice what happens in the house here. Notice that there's a reversal of roles and that Jesus, who is the guest, he becomes the host. You see it there in your Bibles? You see, it was the custom for the host to offer the prayer and the host to break the bread as it was the home of the host. But it's not Cleopas who takes the bread and blesses it, but this stranger who has been invited as a guest into the home. Jesus took the bread and he prayed over the meal and then he broke the bread, distributed it to those who were at the table and it's then that their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus. And immediately upon their recognition of him, Luke tells that Jesus vanished from their sight. Well, how were these two able to recognize Jesus? Well, we know that it was by divine hindrance that they couldn't recognize him, so it was by divine permission that they now could. But why in the breaking of bread? Why, when he broke the bread, why, why is it then that their eyes were opened? I think for these two followers of Christ, you see, they had done time and time again. They, they, they were with Jesus all the time. And what did they do with Jesus? They always broke bread with Jesus and they always fellowshiped with Jesus. And it's through that, hear it now, the consistent, consistent, consistent familiar activity that the divine hindrance was removed and they were able to see Jesus. You see, brothers and sisters, you need in your life that consistent, consistent, consistent familiar activity of breaking bread and fellowshipping with Jesus. You need to draw near to him. And notice as they immediately recognized him, he immediately disappeared, which tells us, which tells us, it wasn't the physical vision of Jesus that they needed. Or else Jesus would have stayed the whole night, right? If this is what they needed to see, if you guys need to see me, then here I am. And I'm going to spend all night with you guys and we're going to be together in fellowship. 
but rather they simply needed to see Jesus through his word. That their conviction of seeing Jesus Christ would come in and through Holy Scripture. And after Jesus left, notice their hearts didn't burn because they saw him with their eyes. But look at verse 32. Did not our hearts burn within us while he what? Talked to us. While he opened to us the scriptures. That's when their heart burned. Christian believer, does your heart burn with conviction when you open Holy Scripture? Or have you been finding that you have a diminished appetite? Is this road to Emmaus seldom traveled in your Christian life? Or is this road even non-existent? That the only time you even see the Word is when you see the Word and hear the Word is only when you come on a Sunday. That's not what the Word was meant for. It was meant for your life. If this road traveled to Emmaus is non-existent in your life, then how are you going to recognize Him? Beloved, how are you going to recognize Him in your life? Apart from Holy Scripture, you won't recognize Him. And He'll He will remain a stranger to you. And it might be this morning that you've come to this retreat and he feels like, I feel like Jesus is like a stranger to me. And the reason why he probably feels like a stranger is because because you're you're not growing as a Christian. And you might be asking, well, how come I'm not growing as a Christian? It's simply this. It's because you're not eating. You know, I have kids, and some of you back there, you guys have kids, and, you know, you look at your kids, and they're kind of small. My kids are kind of small. I'm like, you got to eat, dude. <laughs> I, got, I, got two, I got two girls, Alan, Barry, they know. They're really skinny. They're really small. Dude, can you eat those nuggets? Can you finish those nuggets, man? Come on, hurry up. <laughs> you got to grow. The reason why you might not be growing as a Christian is because you're not eating. And you're not eating because you have no appetite. Do you you know how to increase your appetite? Not by starving yourself. Contrary to what you might think, that actually decreases your appetite. So how do you increase your appetite? It's by eating. You know what I do before I go to Korean barbecue? I eat it up. Other people are like, I'm not going to eat all day. You're a fool. (laughs) I'm going to eat it up. So right when I wake up, rock, 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 no? So when it's time for Korean barbecue at night, let's do this. You know, that's how it works. Amen. I heard an amen. (laughs) You You increase your spiritual appetite by eating holy food by walking on the road to Emmaus with the bread of life. And again, it might be that you've come to this retreat and you're finding yourself without Christ. Jesus said in John 6, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And he said, Come to the bread of life. Come to Jesus that you might never go hungry and that you might never thirst. 
Beloved, come to Jesus. Come to Holy Scripture. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this narrative and we thank you for the risen Christ for revealing to us and showing us that vision of you, the beatific vision of you that can only be seen through Holy Scripture. May we love your word and all of your word and nothing but the word. And may you use your word to so sanctify us. Sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would increase our appetites, that you would give us an enlarged desire, that, Lord, it would be our our want and our will to come to Jesus and that to fellowship with him. And we know that in and of ourselves this is not possible but only by your grace, only by your grace is this possible. So have mercy on us, O Lord. Be with us now as we worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.